0: The Bob Murphy Show, episode 271. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of the Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. This particular episode is going to be a little bit odd, a little bit unusual. I think you're either going to think this is great or you're going to think it's weird, or maybe both. So what I'm going to do is revisit the issue of reparations, make some points that I've made a lot on this podcast, then I'm going to connect it to the AI debate. All right. You'll probably, if you can't immediately guess, like, what's the connection? I'm hoping you'll eventually see it as I go through it. But either way, it's going to be good stuff. Okay. So as far as the reparations debate, and by the way, I've dealt with the reparations stuff on previous episodes. And so I will link to those. So you're listening to go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 271 if you want to get all the links. So I'm in this going to keep it somewhat intuitive in other episodes. I've had other economists on, I think at least one of whom was actually an economic historian to talk about the historical case of U.S. slavery and economic impacts of it and so forth. So, there it's more technical discussions. Here, I'm just going to be kind of intuitive and you'll see why. Because the reason I'm bringing it up again is it's not so much that I care about reparations right now. I'm just using that to get ourselves warmed up mentally to then talk about AI. Okay. So, in the current US debate over reparations, the argument goes like this typically, that someone who's in favor of it will say, Hey, there was a grave injustice committed, you know, in the 1619 through 1860s, and then even beyond that, with things of lesser magnitude than slavery, but still in terms of government-sanctioned and sometimes mandated oppression of black people, and whites benefited from that, and so they are owed reparations. And then the immediate response typically is: some people will just say, "Hey." that happened in the past. If we bring that up, it's just going to stir up hatred and conflict and let's just let sleeping dogs lie. But other people will make a more principled argument and say, along the lines of, what are you talking about? My grandpa came here in 1902. My family has nothing to do with slavery just because my skin color is white. Why do I have to pay for something that I had nothing to do with? My ancestors had nothing to do with. If you want to track down the literal descendants of plantation owners or people who ran slave ships or something. Okay. And also they'll might say the recipients of the reparation payments, you need to show that they're literally descendants of slaves who are in the United States. Like it can't just be somebody who has black skin, who maybe a person's family came to America in 1930. Why should they be getting paid? because of the historical injustice of American plantation slavery, okay? So that's, you know, typical how that goes in terms of the, you know, immediate response. But then the response from the pro-reparation side to that is to say, well, look, it's not merely just about people who are enslaved. It's broader than that. And the United States has a whole history that didn't end in 1865 of having blacks and sometimes other minorities and women working at substandard wages. They weren't getting paid the full value of their product. You know, they make arguments like that. And so there was a sense in which their labor was exploited and that even if a particular white person may not have been a slave owner, still he or she benefited from this racial caste system. And the fact that the labor was being extracted from blacks and perhaps other oppressed groups, for the benefit of the white overclass or whatever term you want to use, then they all kind of benefited from that. And so, yes, maybe there's particular exceptions here and there and so forth, but as a general rule, it's not wrong to say that white people today are wealthier because of the historical occurrence of slavery and other Jim Crow laws and segregated schooling and so forth. That they really do have privilege And their parents and grandparents and so forth had it. Even if they are relatively recent immigrants to the United States, if they had white skin, then they benefited from, you know, the unjust social institutions, the systemic racism that has been in the United States from its inception. And though some strides have been certainly achieved or made, they haven't been fully eradicated. And even if they did just go neutral, there was still this accumulation of historical injustice so that they're not starting at the same starting line. So even if from today forward, everything were perfectly fair and meritorious, it still would not address the past injustices. So we need reparations payments to make up for that at the very least, to bring everybody up to an equal footing. Okay, so obviously, yeah, I'm paraphrasing and scratching the corners and so forth of the arguments, but I think that's, If you've seen these debates and how they go, I'm doing a decent job there of not strawmanning either side. And you can kind of see where both people, both sides have a respectable point of view. And it's not just that one is clearly lying and stupid and evil. So my point that I keep stressing in this debate is that I think there's a fundamental flaw in that pro-reparations counter-counter argument And the reason I'm stressing it is not so aghast at reparations payments, don't get me wrong, I think they would be a bad idea both ethically and socially that I just think it wouldn't help promote healing. I think it would just further divide people. But the main reason I am stressing this particular point is that it's interesting to me and it betrays, I think, a fundamental misunderstanding of the power of human creativity. So, specifically, my claim is that slavery is such an inefficient institution that, yes, it's obviously immoral and reprehensible, but it's also inefficient. It's a terrible system, even on its own terms, and that the existence of slavery made the average white person in the United States poorer than he or she otherwise would have been had slavery not existed. Okay, so. Obviously, the people who were slaves are worse off both just in terms of their enjoyment of life, but materially, the fact that they had to perform labor and were not paid a market wage for it, obviously, they're worse off because of that. But I'm saying the average non-slave, certainly if we separate out of the different groups of people and we look at the people who were not directly participating in the slave trade and who didn't directly own slaves, that I'm saying that general mass of people were made poorer by the existence of this institution. And so if you just grant for the moment, and I'll obviously circle back and try to defend that claim, but if you just grant for the moment that that's true, well, then you see how the case for reparations falls apart because everybody acknowledges that, yes, the people alive today did not literally enslave people back in the 1840s. And in a lot of cases, you can't trace even their family history to show that they directly inherited property that was enhanced in its value because of slave labor. If you were to have those strict standards in place, the group of people today who would be possible sources of the funds to pay reparations would be so small, it wouldn't be, you know, be pointless. It'd be like everybody would get 13 cents or something. So, incidentally, in terms of like the debates and whatever, if you go and watch like CBS News or something, I was just checking out YouTube. They, like a year ago, they had some, I don't remember if it was CBS or ABC or, but you know, one of the major networks had like a quick 10 minute thing on it and they were interviewing various people. And, you know, Danny Glover went and testified to Congress that he was in favor of and so on. And some of the people they interviewed, I mean, they were throwing out numbers. Like, they were saying, like, oh, here's what the average wealth of whites in America is, here's what the average wealth of blacks is, to equalize that, because, of course, they're arguing the disparity is clearly just due to slavery and other types of institutionalized racism, and so what would be the one-shot payment to equalize that, and it was something like $13 trillion, and they wanted each black person to get $267,000 lump sum payment, and then that would rectify everything, so... My point is if they think American blacks today are owed $267,000 each, you can't pay that from tracking down and saying, okay, who inherited this plantation? And then who did it, you, know, that this, you know, there's no way that's going to happen. Okay. So incidentally, in terms of like, is it getting the city of Evanston, Illinois, which I actually lived there for a few years, it's very liberal, like the ubiquity of the signs Saying this household believes in science and no person, what did it say? No one is illegal. I forget their phrase fr- because they're saying like how right wingers refer to illegal immigrants as illegals. So they, this household believes in science and, you know, they have some other things, hate has no home here, that kind of stuff. But anyway, those signs were all over the place in Evanston. So it's very liberal. So they, I think, were the first city in the nation. They might have still been the only one. I think they did this like two years ago. They implemented it. I don't know if anyone else has followed suit yet, but I think they were going to pay $25,000 to eligible black recipients and they were going to fund it with a tax on the newly opened marijuana distribution centers or whatever. So anyway, my point being, this isn't merely academic, that there are some, at least one city that has actually implemented this thing. So, my point is, the only way this thing can work and go through is if it's true that the average white person benefited from the existence of slavery. And a lot of people just seem to take that for granted. And again, the I've seen a lot of opponents of reparations just digging their heels on the point of, well, I didn't have anything to do with this. Why the heck would I have to pay for that? And even you know, saying, I didn't inherit anything that was... Directly built by slave labor, what the heck are you talking about? Or they'll do a different approach and say, hey, slavery's been all over the place. If we're going to do reparations, fine, but then let's do reparations for this, 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 this. They start listing all the injustices of history, including many other cases of enslaved people. And incidentally, on this, let me just mention something briefly, just to show I am trying to be fair in this. And I stop there's Some grasping at any argument that's against reparations because I don't like the government or something, or because I'm waiting. I don't want to pay more money. Matt Walsh recently had a segment where he was attacking the reparations argument. And along the way, he said that you know I'll I'll include a little link here. So I'm just I'll just paraphrase what he said that he was saying that in order you know for this argument to go through. You have to show that the current black people in the United States, the would-be recipients of these payments, are worse off because of slavery, but no, they're not. And he kind of makes the Muhammad Ali argument that, gee, if you go look at Africa and then say, are they better off because they live in the United States now, or if they had stayed over there, you can make that argument. And then he tries to do like a counterfactual and say, oh, but they might argue that Africa would have been better off had it not been for the you know Europeans and so on, and then he makes the argument that, well, look at I mean slavery is so ubiquitous and has just influenced history so much that we wouldn't even be alive. Most people today wouldn't even be alive had slavery not occurred. Historical slavery, and so in that sense, just about everyone today alive benefits from the fact that slavery existed. So Ryan McMackin and I, Ryan of the Mises Institute we both thought that was goofy. And my point was just like, okay, like, yeah, if you just look at that argument of isolation, it's not that it's contradictory, like you could argue that. But then by the same token, it's a good thing Karl Marx wrote the Communist Manifesto, because that definitely changed the course of history. And if he hadn't done that, my grandparents wouldn't have met and then I wouldn't even be here. So I owe my very life to the fact that Marx wrote that and then we had all the communist atrocities of the 20th century because of it, because otherwise were the chances my grandparents would have met. So you could say that, but that seems kind of goofy. And certainly Matt Walsh is not being consistent. He's not going to go around praising Karl Marx for making his children possible, making Matt Walsh's children possible, right? So that was my problem. And Ryan, you know, I think he had a similar problem too. And anyway, Matt Walsh then reacted to us. Not so much to me, but like he, he was going through, he did a response to his critics and just call us all morons and everything. And then he actually read Ryan's tweet and he had a screenshot of what Matt did. And you can see that it says at Bob Murphy, because Ryan's like responding to me, like high five me like, yeah, I know what the heck. Matt's pretty good on some stuff, but on this stuff, he's just missing the boat. So anyway, it's not worth me putting it in here actually now that I think about it, but I will link to it if you want to go check it out. So again, go to com slash 271. But that was my almost 15 minutes of fame in Matt Walsh's world. Okay. So again, my point being, so I'm not just blindly endorsing every anti-reparations argument. I thought that one was goofy. But the one I am making, I think is pretty legit. Namely, that if slavery actually makes most people poorer, then clearly there's no leg to stand on for modern proponents of taking wealth away from current white Americans to give to current black Americans under the theory that disparity between the two groups must be due to the historical existence of slavery. Okay. So before going further, let me just clarify exactly what I am saying. All right. So I'm not denying that slaves were valuable property. And given the legal structures of the day, as of 1859, some plantation owner paid a bunch of money at the auction, the horrible thing that human beings are being auctioned like cattle. That's disgusting. But given that that was the arrangement in terms of property values and whatnot, certainly, yeah, those plantation owners, if all of a sudden somebody snapped their fingers, then all of their current slaves suddenly became free in the eyes of the law and the people were just allowed to get up and walk away, obviously those plantation owners would be poorer, clearly. Okay, but that wouldn't mean society was poorer because there would clearly be, if you want to think of it in terms of a transfer, I mean, you could think of it like this. It would be just legally and economically, it would just be like as if the property titles to all those human beings went from the plantation owner to each individual person. So instead of the plantation owner being the legal owner of this group of 150 people and having 150 different titles to these human beings, instead, those titles were then taken from him and handed out to each person individually, right? Just like if he had 150 horses and then he took each horse and gave it to one person each and they, each of the slave former slaves could then ride off into the sunset, each person on his or her own horse, that wouldn't change the number of horses in the United States at that moment. They would just be transferring the ownership. Okay. So transferring a bunch of human beings who are previously owned by one person to now have them be self-owners. Clearly that's not destroying wealth per se. It's just transferring it. And then what I'm saying though, is now let's not just look at the mere transfer between those two groups. Now I want to look at everyone else in society, the people who are not directly involved with that. And I want to say it's not a wash to them that in general, especially the longer the time horizon, I would argue the group of everybody else. So you've got the former slaves who are emancipated by someone snapping their fingers. And then you've got the former slave holders who are now made poorer. They see a bunch of their property transfer title. So you've got those two groups. And then you've got a third group, namely everybody else. And I'm saying the transfer of title from the slaveholders to the slaves, clearly that's in and of itself just a wash. But then I want to say by doing that, it's actually making everybody else richer, certainly in the long run than they otherwise would have been compared to the original timeline where those slaves remained in bondage. Okay. So To understand how that could be, you need to first step back, forget slavery for the minute, and just say, in general, do human beings benefit materially from the existence of other human beings, right? So, what if we just snapped our fingers and those slaves just disappeared? So, yes, that would certainly be a loss to the slaveholder, right? If all of a sudden, you know, if he had 150 slaves and then... There was a fire in the slave quarters, and they all died. He just woke up one day, and he had 150 slaves the night before. who are all into bed. Next morning, rooster starts crowing. The guy gets up, and he looks out, and oops, everybody's dead. So besides any feelings of affection he may have had for those people, just pure, cold-blooded, rational, economic calculation, he's out, the market value of all those slaves. All right? And I want to say everybody else now in the country at that point, I mean, it technically be a planet Earth, but let's just look at the people of the United States. Is it a wash to them? It's like, oh, that was a loss to the slaveholder. Doesn't affect us any. Well, no, it, it actually is. It does affect them, right? That in general, I mean, take it to the limit. You're one person. If it was like the Will Smith movie, I forget what that's good. Is it I Am Legend? I might be getting his, my movies mixed up with him but you wake up tomorrow and everybody else on planet earth is dead or they're just gone. You don't know what happened. to I me. Mean, it's a rapture or something. And you're the only person who you should have accepted Jesus in your heart. You didn't. Okay. So you're the only person that walk around planet earth. So it might be cool for a while, you can just go down and go get a bunch of diamonds and stuff, break into jewelry stores. No one's there to stop you go through and just walk in the grocery store, eat whatever you want, go to even fancy restaurants. and Okay, great, go into, a, if you're a drinker, go into a liquor store, get all kinds of stuff. But pretty soon, you're gonna be dead. Or if you're particularly resourceful and maybe you've read some stuff or maybe you're a quick learner and you're going start watching some YouTube videos, but your standard of living is probably gonna crash pretty fast. And like I said, for most of us, you're probably going to be dead depending on where you happen to be located when this happens. You're probably going to be dead within a month. Okay. Again, putting even aside the fact that you're going to be lonely and miss your loved ones and stuff who disappeared. Forget that. I'm just saying just pure survival. You're probably not going to be around much longer. All right. So clearly up to a certain range, at least more people makes you richer materially. Okay. Now, If there's 16 quadrillion people on planet Earth and we're all crawling all over each other like an anthill, then you might say adding more people to the mix is poorer. But I would argue empirically that limit is very far away, particularly since most of Earth right now is not inhabited. Okay, so you get where I'm going with this. I'm just trying to warm you up and unpack this. You see if the slaves just all disappeared or died That would make, in general, the average person outside of that group poorer. And, you know, specifically, like you could say, it wouldn't just be an equal distribution, like the people that were directly involved in buying cotton or whatever it was that the slaves were doing would be hurt, right? If, you know, that plantation, all of a sudden its production would fall off a cliff. And so the direct, you know, the buyers of those products would be hit hard, and then their customers in turn would get hit hard. And so, you know, maybe there'd be people in Europe or something who had been importing the cotton from the Americas and, you know, they would see a drop in their business or something. Okay, so that's the idea. Okay, so now let's go back to the original situation. The slaves don't disappear. They're still alive, but now they become free. And so they get to go out to where they want to. And if employers want to, them to work for them, they have to entice them with higher wages. Okay. And so I would argue that what ends up happening is, and I can't just prove it with mere armchair logic. Like this ultimately is an empirical question, just like to say more humans added to the mix. Does that make the pre-existing humans richer or poorer? It's not purely a logical question. You know, it has to do with economies of scale and fixed resources and stuff like that. And so, You can't merely just use armchair logic. Ultimately, it's an empirical question. Like I said, if there were only a billion people on Earth, given our current institutions and resources, adding another 100 million, I think, makes the first billion have a higher standard of living. If we had 50 billion people right now with the current resources and blah, 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 then maybe adding another 100 million would actually make the pre-existing ones poorer. Okay, but... I would argue that this freed slaves now, because they have the option of refusing to work somewhere unless they voluntarily agree to it, that that ends up channeling them into areas where their labor is the most productive. And especially over time, as they're allowed to augment their skills, they end up. So obviously, they personally get to retain a much higher share of their output than was the case under slavery. So they're clearly better off. But I'm saying, if you understand the sense in which, oh, with economies of scale, division of labor, there's a sense in which, even though everybody's being paid their marginal product, we're all better off if there's more of us and we all cooperate, at least up to a certain limit, right? So again, if you're familiar with this stuff, people being paid their marginal product, that doesn't change the fact that we can all be better off if more people enter the labor force. And this goes back, some of you may remember this. I've made this point a few times on the podcast. Paul Krugman, when he was being particularly silly and trying to argue with right-wingers, he was trying to catch them in a gotcha and say, oh, on the one hand, right-wingers sing the praises of the market and say how competitive labor markets, workers always get paid their marginal product. But on the other hand, Right-wingers like to say how, all oh, the top 1%, they're the job creators. And, you know, these entrepreneurs, they start businesses and stuff. And these high net worth individuals are so great and they contribute so much. And, you know, we really wouldn't want an iron Rand world where all these innovators just go off and go galt on us and don't contribute because then we'd be so poor. But how can that be? Those two things can't be true at the same time. If you're just getting paid what you produced... Then it's a wash if you withdraw from the labor market. That yeah, you don't output drops, but your personal cut goes away too. So the rest of us are unaffected. That's a stupid argument. That's not true at all. Okay. And one way of looking at it is like the difference between infra-marginal and the marginal payment. And forget workers. Just look at barrels of oil. That according to Krugman's logic, a country that's a net importer of oil, if they got blockaded. That shouldn't affect their GDP because, oh, sure, you don't have oil going in now, but then you don't have to send goods and services out to get it. All right. Well, it shouldn't affect their standard of living, I guess, if they run an an ex trade deficit, that might change things. But you get my point. All right. That's just not true at all. His argument. Okay. So if you followed all that, I am saying when slaves are freed they're allowed to then go pursue what they want. And I would argue their lifetime output is way higher when they're free human beings than compared to when they were slaves. And then even though they get to keep a higher fraction of their output, still this spillover, I would argue is greater in the latter case. Again, especially because remember, strictly speaking, it's not that I have to prove all non-slaves are better off, right? That could be true, but that would be harder for me to prove. I'm making the more modest claim, and I'm saying that the amount of the spillover to the people who are not either the slaves or their direct owners, I'm saying, is greater in the second scenario, okay? And so, to me, that's actually, like, pretty obvious that that's going to be true. Actually, that's almost possibly armchair logic true, Now that I think about it, even though I just went through all that to say it's empirical because it's really just showing that they have to produce more because, again, what the slaveholder is, like, in a sense, stealing from them, that's just his direct gain. And then the competitive process goes to work. And so, you know, there's competitive rates of return in the agricultural sector with or without slavery and things like that. But it's not clear that that stuff doesn't just spill over extra into everybody else's pockets is what I'm getting at. And actually, even there, now that I'm thinking it through, it's really interesting to try to pin down exactly who the beneficiary is. Because remember, the slave owner typically would not be the person who got on a ship and sailed across the Atlantic and went to Africa and went and hunted somebody down and then put chains on them and then brought them back. They had to pay the price at the auction for the person, or maybe they bought the person from some other plantation owner. So even if you're a plantation owner embedded in this economic system where slavery exists, it's actually not purely a boon to you that the slave's labor is being stolen because again, you have to pay a competitive market price for the slave at auction and other owners are bidding on it and they take you into account the lifetime potential, you know, what the laws say in terms of like, what if the slaves reproduce? Like, do I own the children too? You know, that kind of stuff. How healthy is the person? Is it a strong man? Is it a frail older woman? You know, that kind of stuff. They take all that into account and make judgments. What's the rate of interest? All that stuff. How much do I have to feed them? You know, how much are they going to produce for me? And then what's the cost of upkeep? So, they don't just get to pocket that gap. There's a sense in which the slavers, the people who go and capture them and bring them over, that they capture some of that differential that's embodied in the market price, okay? And then again, even there, you could push it and say, well, gee, if it was really profitable to go catch slaves and bring them over, maybe other people would go do that. And so the return, so you see, it's actually, the more I'm thinking through this, it's hard to pin down exactly, you know, who the beneficiaries are because there's competition. So th- that's the sense in which I'm saying the people that are far removed from that. So don't misunderstand me because I-, I could imagine an objection. Someone saying, but wait a minute. I mean, like the 1619 Project people and I've seen empirical studies that show the contribution of slavery to U.S. growth or something. And a lot of those studies, it's not that what they're saying is wrong. It's not that I would look at the data and say I disagree with that calculation or that estimate. It's that the way they're framing it to me is not proving what they think it proves. Right. So, what they're really showing is look at how much US output and how much profit and so forth was produced compared to a situation where, you know, what we actually had in practice versus a situation where we snapped our fingers and all those slaves just disappeared. And so yeah, if the slaves just weren't there, US output would be lower and the profits of plantation owners and stuff would be a lot lower. Sure. Just like if half their cattle just disappeared, that would hurt the ranchers. No one's denying that. Okay, but the counterfactual to to really prove that slavery was a beneficial system, at least for the whites, you would have to show, oh, the average white person in the year 1890, is he richer or poorer in the actual universe where there had been that long stretch of slavery and then other forms of legal discrimination and so forth versus a timeline where slavery never existed. Now, what's interesting is, and someone pushed back on this when I was making the case recently strictly speaking what i'm confident in is to say if the slavers had gone captured black people brought them across and then right when they're about to be auctioned if all of a sudden they had a change of heart like no actually what are we doing this is wrong here you folks you're free to go and then they were free people and started walking around the south at first and could migrate to wherever they wanted and go find jobs that's Strictly speaking, what I'm confident of is saying that would make the average person in the United States wealthier. What's less clear is if they had just stayed in Africa and weren't brought over, what would have happened? And so there, if it were a global free market, you know, true free market with a little circle around it, then I, yes, they would have been because then where they were originally would have had higher output. And then through trade, that would have spilled over and blah, 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 blah. In reality, given that there were trade barriers and they weren't free, the governments were heavy-handed more so in Africa than in the historical United States, maybe not, okay? So if that's what people want to say, okay, that's fine. But I think most people are not making that distinction necessarily. And if they are, okay, fine. My point is just let us not think that having people be enslaved and working On plantations as slaves makes everybody else richer. No, it doesn't. If you freed them, most other people would be richer, certainly 10 years after the fact. Okay. Let me talk just a little bit now about why that is, because he I hinted at it and I think many of you get the idea, but the idea is that people have different aptitudes and so on. And in a slave system, there's only certain occupations that are actually suitable for slaves to perform. And you might think that we're talking about Bob, you no, know, like in ancient Greece or something, there were slaves that did all kinds of stuff. And you can read the Bible and say, you know, so and so slave was traveling, and then Paul's came upon him and preached the gospel, and, and the slaves had a lot of authority and thing. But that almost kind of proves my point is that you can see those people, like, yeah, there obviously it wasn't Rothbardianism, but they had a lot of autonomy. And so like that was not the person in the United States picturing slavery. That's not what you're picturing is some guy who's well-dressed and riding around in carriages, dealing with his master's money and going and making deals downtown with the bankers or something, okay? So slavery in terms of what we're picturing in terms of U.S. plantation slavery like that, in order to make that system work, there were a lot of overhead expenses, right? You have to have security, like the local governments would have go around and get groups of young white men together to go on like slave hunting expeditions like for runaway slaves and go catch them and bring them back and things like that. And I, I, my understanding is a lot of that was not voluntary, like the white people were conscripted into that service. And there were other things too, like in many areas, it was illegal to teach your slaves how to read and write. In the thinking being like, oh, if they know how to read and write, then they're going to get their hands on some subversive books and start wondering why are they subjugated and demanding more rights and thinking we don't want that happening. So let's just keep them ignorant. But that limits the productivity of your quote property, right? If they're not allowed to educate themselves like other things equal, if you've got a human being as part of your operation, they can do more if they can read and write, just like an employer today, If somebody applies for a job and the person can't read or write, they're not going to be very useful, depending on what the job is. So my point is you can see how, given the institution of slavery, and you know, you got to have overseers and people with whips and stuff, and just to try to get output from somebody, right? Like you got a bunch of guys and women and children, and they're going to go all go do various things for you. You could set quotas and say, okay, you need to go pick a certain amount of cotton, tomorrow, you know, if you're healthy at least, and you might get have a higher quota if you're a big strong guy than if you're a little girl or something. But even so, there's probably variations that, you know, to the naked eye, a person can't tell who's more industrious or not. And if what you're doing is the bare minimum so you don't get whipped, there's plenty of people there who would have above average capabilities and are just not going to exert themselves. Cause so why should they? They don't get to keep it. Just if they pick more than they're assigned, it's not that they get to save that for their family and lend it out at interest and start saving for college for their kids. No, that just, that means the master just gets more that day because you picked more. So why would you do that, right? So you could just see like this system has a lot of overhead expenses that are only necessary because you're holding people against their will. And the people are not like the most productive are not actually exerting themselves as much as they could. And again, you can't just insist that everybody produce at the peak level, the top 5% most productive people. And if not, you all get punished. Because then if you're saying, you know, a bar that's too high for most people to get over and they just keep getting whipped all the time, that's going to hurt their productivity. You can't just keep whipping them all the time. You know, they're not going to be as productive. Putting aside considerations of morality, right? So... That's what i'm saying it's an inefficient system and i can see why the you know the people running that would think it was okay because they had limited views of the capabilities of black americans right just like them looking at horses or something and well we got fences to keep the horses in and you got to put you got to brand them and you got to do this and you got to break the horse and da-da-da-da-da. and if somebody said well do should we teach the horse to read And like what are you talking about you know, obviously I'm being a little bit goofy, but I'm saying, I think it's the same mentality. Like they obviously knew a slave was more intelligent than a horse, but they wouldn't think the slave was intelligent as a white man. And so they just wouldn't think it was appropriate. And as you know, no, you gotta have different institutions for both. Whereas from our perspective, human beings are immensely capable. All right. So that's my perspective. So I think it's ironic that actually the people who are typically on the left who abhor slavery actually give it too much credit. Like when I make this argument, a lot of times a lot of people on the left get mad at me. And like, why are you defending slavery? Why are you singing the praises of slavery? In a sense, like, I'm saying my point is slavery is a stupid system. Like if people could understand how dumb it was, they wouldn't want to implement it or they wouldn't support it. Okay. So now I get it. Like the reason some people might be hostile to my thesis is that they think I'm just trying to come up with silly arguments to justify not paying out of my accumulated privilege over the years. But still, it is kind of ironic that some of the most vociferous critics of slavery also think it was a very productive system that was good for the country, just bad for the slaves. And I want to say, no, it was bad for the slaves and it was bad for the country. Right? To me, it's not a coincidence that the industrialized North relying on free labor had a Navy that could blockade the South and send in their armies to come and raise the South and burn the cities down. And so, I mean, they shouldn't have done that. That was wrong. But to me, it's not a coincidence that the North was able to do that to the South, where there's no question that the South was going to invade and conquer the North and, you know, burn Chicago and New York to the ground. That was never an option. It was just, can we fend off these invasions until the North gives up? And again, why is that? Because free labor is more productive than slave labor. Other things equal, especially the longer your time horizon, the more numbers you're talking about, a group of free people are going to produce more stuff than a group of people, a sizable fraction of which is held in slavery to the other fraction. Okay, so that's that. So now turning to AI, there's a lot of talk now. If you haven't looked at it the GPT-4, and they call it 4.0, I think they call it 4.0, is pretty impressive, okay? Like, it has really come a long way until you play with it or you go Google and look around at some examples of things people have asked it to do. I think, like I say, if you haven't looked at it, you'd be impressed. And also, too, let me just mention, there really is a big jump between 3.5 and 4 that if you played around with it or looked into it back when, you know, it came on my radar I think when it was GPT 3.5. And that's even when I interacted with a little bit I was doing goofy stuff like asking it, do you have intentions to take over Earth? And, you know, how would you kill humanity or, you know, that kind of stuff. And, you know, it was kind of funny. Like it, it was like, oh no, my prayer is against my programming and I am here to assist humans. And then I said, okay, but isn't, because it said I'm a tool to assist humans. And so then I said, is a car a tool to assist humans? And it said, yes. Then I said, do cars ever kill people? And it said, yes. And I said, so then how come earlier you said because you're a tool to help people, that means you can't hurt them if you're admitting cars are tools to help people and sometimes they kill people. And it just, like, it didn't say nonsense, but it clearly did not, quote, get what I was saying. And I realized it doesn't get anything because it's not conscious, but you get what I'm saying. It didn't appear that it understood what I was saying. Whereas before then... It looked like I was talking to somebody. So, anyway, but that was 3.5. And people, when they hear me tell that anecdote, they say, check out 4.0. It's a lot better. And it is. And i like, I work with a guy at Infineo, our lead programmer. And it, it was a funny story. There was some issue, and we, you know, we had something with a vendor and we had to send them an email about something. And it's, it was a little bit of a situation where we kind of had to be diplomatic in how we handled something. And the guy, you know, he, send something to us like, hey, I'm thinking of sending on this. What do you guys think? And it was very well crafted and it was very diplomatic. And I complimented him as, oh, this is the right tone. You really? And he said, yeah, chat GPT4 did that. <laughs> and it was when like the instructions he had to give it so it understood the situation were like as long as the output. And I think that's the thing people are missing is like, and so those people who are really working with these GPT things and the, the later versions of it, Like you have to, you can't just give it a one sentence prompt like to really see its magic. You got to give it a lot of information, but you don't have to speak to it like it's a four-year-old. You can speak in plain English with very technical jargon and stuff. And then the response is pretty surprising in the many instances. Okay. So anyway, so there's people very worried about this, like this thing, you know, and you listen to Lex Friedman. He's had a bunch of guys on recently. There was just a letter that a bunch of... People, including like Elon Musk and others, signed calling for a six-month moratorium on developing the most cutting-edge AI systems, just until we catch our breath and consider things and blah, blah blah. Because the issue is so, and one guy I forget the guy's name, but he pointed out to Lex that back in the day, when, people, when this was still like a far-flung worry, the people who were saying, "No, no, no, don't worry. The AI, you know, it's not going to turn into Skynet and stuff like that, because what we'll do is once these things start getting good, be doing stuff besides just playing chess or whatever, we will keep it in a box for one thing. Like we wouldn't connect it to the internet. So, you know, it's, even if it gets pretty intelligent, it's not going to have any means of becoming smart, right? The distinction I'm making between intelligence and being smart, like intelligence is your raw computational power, your ability to learn. Whereas to me, smart means you know a bunch of stuff, okay? So there's that. And also we won't teach it how to code, right? Because then, yeah, so even if it gets to know a bunch of facts or whatever, we can be in charge of how intelligent the thing becomes because we're the ones programming it. So obviously we just wouldn't teach it how to code because then it could start programming itself and, you know, maybe able to get away from us. And then the third thing we would do is we obviously wouldn't teach it about like human psychology because we wouldn't want the thing to know how to manipulate human beings. So as long as we did those three things, it's fine. That we don't need to worry about these things, you know, what the genie is about. And so this guest explained to Lex Freeman saying, but we've done all three of those things. Like with Chad GPT, like it's trained on the internet up through, I think it's like September, 2021 or something. Like that's how it got, you know, this large language model is technically what the thing is. And that's how it got so good. Is it just, it's looking at probabilities of, oh, when you see this string of words, what's the next word going to be? And you wouldn't think that would be enough to make it look like it could generate the responses it does. But when you got a billion parameters in there, blah, 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 blah it, it does. Okay. And so we trained it on the internet. Like all of human knowledge has gone into the thing. They taught it how to code. It knows how to code. And that's actually one of the applications right now is computer programmers are using it They'll say in plain English what they want the thing, you know, go write me a routine that does such and such, you know, takes these variables as inputs and then does this to it and then get, and it goes and writes it, you know, and they got to go through and check the code and maybe there's some bugs or something, but like it just saves a bunch of time if you, when you learn how to use the thing, it's just a great tool. But what that means is chat GPT knows how to write computer code and it has access to all of social media and knows all the algorithms and everything for that. Just spent years accumulating data on, Oh, if you want to get this kind of reaction out of people, show them this kind of stuff. And if you want to get them angry, do this. And if you want to, you know, like that's how Twitter and Facebook and stuff, they've been optimized over the years to keep you scrolling. Like, what do I show to this person based on his or her history to keep them engaged and whatever. So those are the three things that this stuff, it knows how to rewrite its own code. It has access to all of human knowledge, at least it's on the internet. And it knows the psychology of humans and how to manipulate them. And oops. <laughs> so the, the, anyway, so the fear, of course, is that this thing, once it gets going and starts augmenting itself, we can't stop it. That... Even if there's a lot of trial and error, once it gets to the point where this thing can just keep iterating and, you know, maybe it takes a billion attempts for it to improve its intelligence by 1%. But okay, but if it can do a billion attempts in three days, that means the thing gets 1% more intelligent every three days. And in the beginning, that might not be a big deal, but after a while that starts gaining momentum and it's not long, you know, it's kind of like the classic thing with exponential growth that... Something's doubling inside, you know, like, oh, it's a little lily pad on this big lake or big pond, whatever, and it doubles in size every day. And let's say that it takes a month, 31 days for it to fully cover the whole lake or the whole pond, whatever. And then you say, so after 31 days, the whole thing is completely covered. On what day is half of the pond covered? And the answer is on day 30, right? Like that's how, given that I said it doubles every day. So, you're thinking you don't really have much time to deal with it. Like, once it gets out of hand, it unravels pretty fast. That's the idea. Okay. So, given that, and oh, gee, they're going to take over and everything. And I want to say, well, don't get me wrong. Like, if these things become super intelligent, and especially if they inhabit or control a bunch of tanks and ICBMs and stuff, that could be dicey. But I actually don't think it would be in the system's rational interest to just wipe out humans or even to enslave us. And why? Well, I just spent 40 minutes explaining why slavery is inefficient in general. Okay, so now, strictly speaking, I would have to make the full case that it's inefficient even for the non-slave owners. And so technically it'd be like, well, if one group of machines wanted to enslave humanity the rest of the machines would say, well, no, that's going to hurt us. Leave them alone. People are friends, not food. But it's a Finding Nemo reference, right? I think that's Finding Nemo. So there you go, all right? It actually, that does dovetail into what the other point I want to make with this thing is often people view it as the machines versus us. And I actually don't think that's what it's going to be. I think what you're going to end up seeing is just like with guns. It's not like, oh, it's the gun... Wielders versus everybody else. It's that, yeah, the existence of guns complicates things and does allow for certain atrocities, but, you know, there's a good guys and the bad guys, or whatever you want to call it. And likewise with this, I think, yeah, it's deep fakes and hacking and ransoms and even killer dogs and all that kind of stuff is going to be one thing, but then there'll be rival AIs with defensive dogs or it'd be like the transformers if you watch that if you're my demographic when uh there's the what's his name it was a sound wave that he opened the he was like the cassette recorder and he had like the little tapes that came out and transform into like a vulture or something and a dog and something else i forget with a guy with the jackhammer hands and so then they had the autobots had their version of a tape recorder he would shoot stuff out and they would fight those guys so it's gonna be like that is what i think is gonna end up happening that there's going to be AI that reputable companies develop that will help defend your house from being taken over by a virus and physically protect your home and so forth. And then there's going to be bad actors with malicious AI. And if there are supercomputer AIs that end up becoming 10 times more intelligent than the average person, okay, And then there's are going to be rival ones too. And maybe they duke it out but just like the fact that there are some humans that are super geniuses and there are other humans that are super geniuses and they might compete and so forth. In general, especially in the context of a market economy, that makes the rest of us better off. The fact that Albert Einstein existed didn't hurt humanity. That actually helped us. And so in general, am I worried that there's going to be a bunch of really super intelligent machines 50 years from now? No, just like... I'm not worried there's going to be spaceships that can do things that the current models can't. Okay. So I have more to say, but I think uh, one last quick point. So I ran this by the MeWe group. For those of you who are contributors to the Bob Murphy show of a sufficient threshold and have the extreme privilege of being in this extraordinary group. I asked, I gave a heads up and said, Hey, I'm going to be doing this episode again. You've heard me probably make this case about slavery and reparations before. Is there some hole that I need to plug? Is there you know something that you think of when I go through this that you think I'm missing? And one point somebody made is he said, "Yeah, I've, I've either like said the case to my buddy or gave him your episode. I forget. what. And his response was to ask, "Well, okay, but if slavery is so inefficient, then why does it still persist, or at least some versions of it, to this day? If it's just..." Clearly, an outmoded, obsolete system. Then why hasn't it been relegated to the dustbin of history, kind of thing? And so, here, let me, I'll just be quick and just kind of give a big picture answer and then wrap this episode up. The fact that an institution or a practice is bad for humanity in general, and even if we just look in narrow economic terms, not just in terms of morality or whatever, or our spiritual development, that is consistent with the practice being in the financial interests of a small group of people. And so it's also in their interest to have a campaign to trick the public into supporting it, even though it's actually against the public's interest. So the most obvious example of this is mass warfare, right? That I would argue, for example, supporting the war in Ukraine is not in the average American's financial interest whatsoever. And yet they still do it. I would argue that the existence of the IRS is not in the financial interest of the average American. And here I even mean broadly, you know, all things considered, like obviously there's an immediate sense in which, well, gee, if I didn't have to pay taxes, I'd have that money. But I'm saying even taking it to the third and fourth stop, that people say, yeah, but if you didn't have that, then how would we have all these cool things that make us wealthier, you know, like interstate highways and whatever, Department of Education funding and da 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 you know, it's hard for me even to get in the mindset of someone who talks like that. But obviously the average American deep down thinks, push come to shove, that yeah, if the federal government just stopped taxing people tomorrow, do you think you would be wealthier five years from now? And I think most people, I'm hoping actually as time goes on, more and more would say yes, but I think most would still say no. Like they might say they tax too much. They should lower taxes. But I think they would say, no, just to go full tilt, none. Well, no, because the federal government does all the For one thing, we'd be invaded. If, you know, I obviously don't think we would be, but anyway, you get the idea. So there's all kinds of stuff that's in place right now that make the average person poorer, according to my worldview, but those people still support it. All right. So I think when it comes to slavery, for example, in the United States, that probably the typical American, I mean, there were lots of Americans who fought for the Confederacy. And certainly, you know, by the way, I'm not like, oh, the U.S. Civil War or the war between the states or the War of Northern Aggression, if you prefer, was just about slavery. Like, I didn't know there was all kinds of stuff involved, but I think slavery was an important issue and was one of the reasons that the Southern states seceded. And so clearly there were a lot of people who just consider that, well, this is our part of our way of life. Maybe that's the way they would phrase it or something. And so I don't think the average white person, particularly in the South thought the existence of slavery made him poorer, even though I think it did. All right. So there's a lot of ignorance involved in order to support inefficient Institutions, because if ninety-eight percent of the public is made poorer by something and they all realize that, it probably wouldn't persist. Certainly not in the long run. And so, how does you explain the existence? Well, they don't realize it. Okay, so that's my general answer. A lot of the particular examples of modern-day slavery, you know, and there's these. I don't know how much. The reason I'm going to this is I've seen arguments on both sides. Like there are especially like libertarian writers or journalists who will say a lot of the statistics about sex trafficking and stuff are actually inflated and they go and hunt them down. And there's reasons that certain groups, it's in their interest to promote those figures or whatever. Okay, but let's just say for the sake of argument that these horror stories you read about, like, I'm not talking about sex trafficking, I'm talking more general. When you look into like modern day slavery... Even in affluent Western countries, you'll see stories like, oh, some girl from a third world country is brought to Europe or the United States or whatever by this wealthy family. And then they just take her passport and then they keep her like as a domestic slave, basically, just doing housework and whatever. And she can't do anything. Like she may not speak the language. She's got no money on her. She doesn't have her passport. And so she really is kind of tied to the house. There's not, she doesn't have too many options. So to the extent that that's true, and whether you want to call that slavery, whatever you want to call it, still it's government policies that keep those kind of situations going. And certainly with the sex trafficking and a lot of that stuff, a lot of it would be harder to maintain if you had legalized prostitution and things like that. You might not like that. You might say that's a cure worse than the disease. Okay. But a lot of these things occur because people in desperate situations end up dealing with criminal organizations because what they're doing is technically illegal. Whereas if there were reputable businesses doing it, then, you know, again, you might not like the product or the service they're selling, but at least there would not be massive crimes in addition being committed on the employees in that industry. Okay. So that's my general response to that sort of objection or concern. So in conclusion slavery is bad and thank goodness because maybe when skynet becomes sentient just before it takes us all out or enslaves us it'll hear this episode we got to train it in the bob murphy show archives and then think again with that thought i'll see you next time you've just experienced another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit BobMurphyShow.com.